Well, it's good to see you guys. My name is Kyle. I serve as lead pastor here. I want to welcome you to New Life Community Church. If you're visiting today, uh, if you're not visiting today, welcome back. It's good to see you. Uh, we are in a series going through the book, uh, sorry, the chapter of Romans 8. So we'll be in the second week of that. So you can go ahead and open your Bible to Romans chapter 8. As you do so, I've been asked by my wife, and if she asks me to do something, I typically listen, uh, to say thank you to everyone who helped out with the bake sale last week. It was a roaring success. Uh, we raised a little over $2,000 for VBS this year, uh, which is amazing. So Thank you guys. Give yourselves a hand. Give the Lord a hand. Amen. Uh, very exciting thing. Uh, other thing I wanted to mention real quick, just kind of as you're finding Romans 8, is uh, there was an email that went out this week concerning uh, our practice of the Lord's Supper here and our intention, our hope, uh, our conviction to move from monthly observance of the Lord's Supper, monthly uh, participation of the Lord's Supper to weekly participation in the Lord's Supper. And we're going to discuss that at the end of the month in our members meeting on April 30th. Uh, but if you haven't seen that email, you remember here, you haven't read that yet, please take a look at it uh, and read through it, see what we've said about that. Uh, we've tried to answer some, what we think might be some frequently asked questions as it relates to that. Uh, and then we'll go from there. Amen. But if you have any thoughts, any concerns, any fears, failures, frustrations, as I tell my home group all the time, uh, bring those to us as well. We're happy. And when I say us, I mean the elder team. So myself, Jasper, Alan, Steve, James, uh, we're happy to visit with you on that. But we look forward to talking further about it on April 30th. Um, anyway, all right. So the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul uh, during his third missionary journey. Most, uh, some believe anyway, uh, that he was probably in Corinth as he was writing this. Uh, but he's writing to Christians in Rome. Now, these Christians are made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And he's writing for their encouragement. He's writing for their edification. He's writing for instruction. And he's writing for exhortation. Uh, he is seeking to build up the churches there in Rome. And he's hoping to come see them on his way uh, to Spain, if the Lord would allow. So, uh, the purpose of the book is to unify believers. It's to bring unity to believers to help us see uh, that we, uh, if we are in Christ, we are so by one spirit, one baptism, one faith. Uh, the Lord has united us together around those things. And Paul is laying out in the book of Romans how this has come to be. And so we're picking up in Romans 8, which is midway through the book. So we've missed a lot, right? But what he's talked about in 1 through 7 is our life in Christ. He's talked about unbelief and the recklessness that it leads to, about how God turns, eventually turns people over uh, to their own sinful passions, their own lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life and its achievements. And this leads to all sorts of ungodliness. And then he talks about how God has sought to save uh, many through Christ Jesus, which unites Jews and Gentiles together. So you're not saved by the law. You're not justified by your works of the law. Rather, you're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And so he begins to explain that in the middle chapters between 1 and 8. Uh, and then in 6 and 7, he gets into sanctification. So after you've been justified freely by his grace, we now see sanctification come into the picture where you're learning how to live as a Christian. And really in chapter 8, he's more explicitly just kind of tying all these things together. And so uh, it is the culmination 
of all of the theology, all of these things, these doctrinal things that you've learned in 1 through 7 is coming together in Romans chapter 8, and that's why I think it's one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. It's just fascinating. Uh, there's so much here, but all of it pertains to our life in Christ. And so what we said uh, is that this is a, a series about um, all of Christ for all of life, right? This is, we're looking at how we have all of Christ for every moment of our life. There's not a moment of our lives as Christians that needs to exist, nor does it exist, let's not fool ourselves, outside of the rule and reign of Christ Jesus, that he has affected everything about who we are. And so that's what we're doing. Last week, we looked at uh, this act of astounding grace, I called it, how where God erases our debt of sin by placing it on his own son at the cross so that we no longer stand condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, Paul writes in Romans, 1, uh, Romans 8, 1. Rather, now what happens is we possess the righteousness of God by faith in Christ, and that is an act of divine grace which saves us from the guilt of our sins, saves us from the penalty of our sins, which is death, and, and gives us life in Christ. It's a, it, it's a grace that is astounding. It, it's a grace, as all grace is, that is undeserved. It, it's an act of mercy on God's part. It's an act of great love on his part to save his people from their sins. And this frees us, we said last week, to live spirit-empowered lives. And I didn't talk too much about what a spirit-empowered life looks like because that's the subject for this week and next week. You might call this life in the spirit part one. Next week will be life in the spirit part two, right? We're going to look at today verses uh, five through 11. And today's text reveals the distinct differences between Christians and non-Christians. There's very distinct differences between Christians and non-Christians, which we might sum up into uh, these words, a renewed mind. It's a renewed mind. The Spirit of Christ, uh, this is my you know, sermon in a sentence, so to speak. The Spirit of Christ grants us life and peace, enabling us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ grants us life and peace, enabling us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Would you stand to your feet as I read Romans 8, verses 5 through 11? We stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We recognize this is his word and not man's. And so uh, let's read now, verse, starting in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for this time that we have now in your word, and we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to receive it as it is written. Help us to understand it as the very breathed words of yourself written for uh, the good of your people. And so, Lord, may we honor you as we listen. May we honor you as we believe your word. And may we honor you in the lives that, that all of this leads us to live from here on. My God, I pray that you would renew our minds, that you would grant us minds that are set on things of the Spirit today. It's in the name of Christ to ask these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to... I want to start this way. I think it's important for us to draw clear lines between Christians and non-Christians, especially given the culture that we live in. There's a distinct difference between um, Christians and non-Christians. This difference carries eternal ramifications. There's a distinct difference, we might say, between living according to the flesh, as Paul writes here, and living according to the Spirit. The first carries with it certain death, while the latter brings life and peace, as we've read. Those in the flesh cannot please God, Paul says, just very explicitly. So that we might not wonder about who does please God or who doesn't please God. We know that those who live according to the flesh cannot please God. However, those who are in Christ, living according to the Spirit, possess and I believe, portray, as he writes here, the righteousness of God. Those who live according to the Spirit possess and portray the righteousness of God. Now, these are valuable truths. In a land where cultural Christianity is the widely accepted religion, and I'm going to explain that now, what do we mean when we say cultural Christianity? Cultural Christianity is a religion that superficially identifies itself as Christianity, but it does not truly adhere to that which is necessary for true faith. A cultural Christian is a nominal believer. He wears the label of Christian, but the label has more to do with his family background, has more to do with his life experiences, his upbringing, than it does any personal conviction that Jesus is Lord. Now, let me clarify, when you have a personal conviction, not just, a, not, not just an acknowledgement that, yeah, Jesus is Lord, or, yeah, I believe there's a God. I believe it's the Christian God of the Bible. Like, these are acknowledgments that those things are true and that one might believe them, but when you have a conviction that Christ is Lord, you must live like Christ is Lord. Otherwise, it's not a conviction. It's just knowledge. Cultural Christianity is more social than spiritual. A cultural Christian identifies with certain aspects of Christianity, such as the good works of Jesus. They find these nice. But they reject the spiritual aspects required to be biblically defined Christians. Some people consider themselves Christians because of their family background, their personal experience, their country of residence, their voting habits, or their social environments. In free nations like the great USA, the gospel is often presented as a costless addition to one's life. Just add church going to your hobbies. Add charitable giving to your list of good deeds or add the cross to trophies on your mantle. In this way, many people go through the motions of accepting Jesus 
with no accompanying surrender to his lordship. These people who do not abide in Christ are cultural Christians. That's what we're saying this morning. They are branches that hang around the vine because he looks good, but they are not attached to the vine as John 15 would declare us to be. I want you to understand that there was no such thing as cultural Christianity in the New Testament, in the first century. And I'm not saying people didn't hang around Christians for a season because it was good for them and they benefited from it to some extent, but when the rubber would meet the road finally in persecution, it became very obvious who was in and who was out. But in free nations, you don't have the rubber meets road possibilities of persecution like you do in non-free places. And so there was no such thing as cultural Christianity in the first century, nor is there today in many parts of the world where being a Christian could actually cost you something, like your breath, your heartbeat, your head, your well-being, your job, your family members, your church. But thinking through this a bit further, I think, gives us a little more clarity as to what we're talking about here. Cultural Christianity is not true Christianity. I think that's clear. But a true Christian is one who has received Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior, according to John 1.12. Christ's death and resurrection has been appropriated to that person as his or her substitute for sin, as we see in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The Holy Spirit indwells that person, as we see here in our text today. Receiving Christ is far more than a mental acknowledgement of truth. Satan acknowledges the identity of the Son of God. The faith that saves us also changes us. Faith without works is dead, James declares in chapter 2. James, uh, sorry, Jesus said that anyone who wishes to become his disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. While we cannot earn salvation by sacrifice or by good works, a lifestyle transformation and desire to please the Lord are direct results of being born again. You have a new life. By definition, you are a new creation in Christ. Old things are passing away. Behold, all things have become new. You are putting off the old man, as Paul says in Colossians and Ephesians, and you're putting on the new man. So you're putting off ungodliness and putting on godliness. These are not so that you might achieve salvation. Rather, they are born out of true salvific faith. Faith produces good works. And so what are some marks of cultural Christianity? Here's some identifying marks of cultural Christianity. Denying the inspiration of Scripture or parts of Scripture. Ignoring or downplaying true repentance as the first step toward knowing God. Focusing on Jesus' love and acceptance to the exclusion of his teaching on hell, obedience, and self-sacrifice. Tolerating or even celebrating ongoing sin while claiming to know God. Redefining scriptural truths to accommodate culture. We see a lot of this happening today. Understanding Jesus to be primarily a social reformer rather than God in the flesh who is the sacrifice for our sin. Claiming God's promises while ignoring the requirements included with them. Denying or minimizing Jesus' claim that he is the only way to God. Performing enough religious activity to gain a sense of well-being without a true devotion to Jesus. 
talking much about God in a general sense, but very little about Jesus Christ as Lord. Seeing protection and blessing as goals to be achieved rather than byproducts of a relationship with God. And finally, choosing a church based upon any or all of the above. These are marks of cultural Christianity. I would think that Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 7 would be something that lands not on deaf ears this morning, but lands on hearts that would say, let me look inwardly. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, Jesus says in what, again, ought to be a wake-up call for the cultural Christian, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. While cultural Christianity, I think, blurs the lines between Christians and non-Christians, I do believe we can know in fact, and that's what Paul says here in Romans 8, uh, he says, if in fact, in verse 9, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. I, I do think it's possible for us to know in fact that the Spirit of God dwells in us. That you can be sure of your salvation in Christ. I think it's made evident in one way by the fruit of your life. And so again, my sermon in a sentence, my thesis today, the Spirit of Christ grants us life and peace, enabling us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, while these truths help us speak more clearly to our culture, they may help us see the culture more clearly. You know, I've, I've grown up in Magnolia and for a long time. I, I even said, I just don't know anybody who's not a Christian. Everyone here is saved. But as you begin to learn what, it, what Christianity requires, what true salvation means for a person, you start to realize this is a really unbelieving population. There are many who are unsaved in Magnolia, Arkansas, in Columbia County. There, there are many who have not surrendered their life to Christ and his lordship. There are many who are wandering from the Lord. And what's worse is they've convinced themselves or even been convinced by false teaching that they're not. This is what Jesus accuses the Pharisees of and, and the things that they teach. He says that you make someone twice a son of hell in your teaching. It's the same thing. They were teaching morality. They were teaching good works as the way to salvation. They were holding people to the letter of the law and some, adding their own requirements to it. And that's what happens in a culturally Christian place or culturally religious place. And so I think these things help us speak more clearly, but we must first evaluate our own lives. We cannot sit here today, I cannot sit as I'm preparing a sermon like this and just think about people out there. You must look at your own heart your own mind today, your own actions, your own works, and judge for yourselves, are you a believer or not? The apostle here in Romans 8 provides the content that's necessary for such evaluation to see whether or not we live a life in the spirit or a life in the flesh. Look again with me at Romans 8, 5 through 8. 
I'm going to highlight or talk about the death of the flesh and the life of the Spirit now. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So you can see here there's two options. There's not an in-between. There's not a neutrality. You are either setting your mind on the things of the flesh on one hand or the things of the Spirit on the other hand. For to set the mind, verse 6, on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not, to submit, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Just in case you were wondering, Paul's like, let me, I'll, I'll add verse 8 here, make it explicitly clear. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And the first thing I want to talk about or examine a little more closely is life in the flesh. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The non-Christian lives according to his flesh, setting his mind on the things of the flesh, which is death. Paul, he says here, to set the mind on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, we saw last week that Christians are free from the condemnation of God because Christ took our sins, which the law of God revealed, and he took those things on himself so that we are free to live by the law of the Spirit or of faith. That's what we talked about last week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They are declared just. This is the doctrine of justification. You have been declared free of your sins, free from the penalty of sins, declared righteous by God. So it's not just that you're uh, that your sins are removed from you, but it's also, because that wouldn't do any good, you would just add sins on top of that very quickly. Like, let's be clear. Like, if your sins are removed, your past failures are removed, and that's it, and so your, your debt's erased, guess what? Moving forward, you're only going to add to your debt. You're only going to increase the debt. So what does God do in Christ? He takes your sins, past, present, future, on himself on the cross, and he places the righteousness of Christ on you. Incredible. Truly incredible. And so now, even as you continue to fail, even as you continue to fall, even as you continue to fall into temptation to sin and do those things which you hate to do and the things you want to do, you find difficult to do, even as you do that, you are justified before God by your faith alone in Christ alone, according to the grace of God alone. Amen? What an incredible truth. And so your condemnation has been removed. There is therefore now no condemnation for you as a believer. But for the non-Christian, the unbeliever who will not submit to God, indeed he cannot submit to God's law. That person remains wholly under the law of sin and death, and condemnation is theirs. It's theirs. This is why one theologian says, you bring nothing to God for your salvation except your sin. That's it. You can't come to him and say, I've got my good works, Lord. 
You can't come to him and say, well, I'm better than that person over there. You can't come to him and say anything other than, here's my sin, take it. And please grant me righteousness in its stead. And so, as I said a moment ago, people are not neutral in this. Paul makes it clear that they have set their minds on the things of the flesh and they are hostile toward God. They hate God. This is what it means to be hostile toward something. They hate the righteous requirements of his law. They're not interested in the things of God. What does Paul mean when he talks about the one who sets their mind on the things of the flesh? Well, this phrase, to set the mind on something, describes the habitual or characteristic mental attitude that determines how one might interpret or respond to certain situations. It is, in essence, who they are, habitually and characteristically. It's them through and through. And so when someone sets their mind on the flesh, they habitually interpret habitually respond to situations in the flesh, which describes, the flesh here describes the seat of sin. It's the place of rebellion to God that is within every person. Everyone is regarded according to the flesh until they are in Christ. That's what we read in 2 Corinthians 5. In other words, living according to the flesh means that you think continually about and consistently you desire the things characteristic to your fallen, sinful, human nature. This person thinks on, they pursue, they desire the same things that the sinful world does. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life's achievements. They do all of this without a care in the world. They do all of this with a full disregard, that is, a rebellion against God, against his will, which they see in his word, which their conscience bears witness to them about, even in things like morality, that there is good and evil. There is right and wrong. These things are not subjective. They're, they're true. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, we see that these people are truth suppressors. They're holding or trying to hold. They will do so unsuccessfully, but they are trying to hold the truths of God down. They are suppressing it so that they cannot see it any longer. They go from one degree of evil to the next. First, they're rejecting God. They're worshiping creation rather than the creator, meaning the things of life seem so good to them that they're worthy of full devotion. They're fully devoting themselves to the stuff of life, to creation. And so they've rejected God. They're worshiping creation. God then gives them over to the debased mind, which takes them all the way down, all the way down. And this is very similar to what uh, the psalmist writes in Psalms chapter 1 about the progression of sin. But this takes them all the way down to where they are now. It's not just enough to be in sin. It's not just enough to deny God themselves. They want to engage others, and they want to encourage them to deny God. They want to encourage others to do the same kinds of evil and worse that they do, and when they do them, they praise them for it. They honor them for it. 
You look at today's world, and you could do this no matter what century you're living in. But you look at the world around you and tell us, tell me we're not guilty of that. That the world isn't guilty of that. But I'll read it to you just so you're not taking my word for it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. This is Romans 1, 18. And unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Meaning, claiming to know better, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I mean, you can look into just the sexual, the sexualization, the sexual perversion that is rampant in our country today and see that creation is being worshipped. It's a worship of the body. It's a worship of one's own sinful passions. They're worshipping creation. They're rebelling against God full throttle, and they're encouraging others to come along with them, especially children, which is maybe the most disgusting part of it all. And so we must be aware, brothers and sisters. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In verse 26, he says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Pay careful attention here. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased minds to do whatever, uh, sorry, to do what ought not to be done. Continue to listen. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, looking for new ways to do it disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, listen to this, though they know that, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What arrogance, right? What pride. You know, it's, it's, it, it's funny. Well, yeah, ironic that June is Pride Month because there's nothing more prideful than giving yourself up to those things. There's nothing more prideful than saying, I'm going to live according to my own desires. There's nothing that declares yourself God more so than doing that. And so it's a really sad thing, yet ironic in the same, and that they're declaring right before us what they are, prideful. Now, here's the application, right? 
These are the fruits and eventual end of a mind set on the things of the flesh, all sorts of lawless works which lead to death. Now, lest you think I'm picking on a particular group of people, I am not. I'm just, I'm pointing out the ones that are super obvious. Non-Christians, those who own their unbelief and are not deceived by cultural Christianity, right? Just people who say outright, I'm rebelling against God. I want nothing to do with religion. I don't care about my morality. I don't care about any of those things, right? These kind of people are typically easy to spot. That's all I'm saying because they abhor everything about God. They abhor his deity, his laws, his divine providence, his attributes, his sovereign power over all creation, his triune nature. They abhor all of it. They find it terrible. Cultural Christians, on the other hand, may be understood better by knowing the elements of their belief system, which sociologist Christian Smith called moralistic therapeutic deism. This one's harder to spot. This is why you can grow up in a place like Magnolia and say, man, everybody's saved because everybody seems to have good morals. And I have been to more funerals than I can count where people get preached into heaven because they were good people. Nothing ever said about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing ever, I'm not saying they weren't, I'm just saying that's the message is that if you're good, you get to go to heaven. And so it's either a failure on the person who was living and died or it's a failure on the pastor. But there's a failure somewhere to communicate the truths that we must surrender to God. We must submit to him and his lordship. Otherwise, we perish without a savior and we go to hell. There is no heaven for us who do this. And this is why cultural Christianity is so devastating because a preacher deceived himself will stand up and preach someone to heaven. So they think because they were good people. They are themselves moralistic, therapeutic deists. Now let me explain to you what that means. The five core beliefs of this, as Christian Smith laid them out, one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. This is good. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. That's not so good. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Also not good. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. How many of you yourselves or have known people who run to the Lord when life goes awry, but when things are good... He's an afterthought. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. They just outright confess it. But the beliefs, we go on to read about this, the beliefs of moralistic therapeutic deism are moralistic in that they place a high value on being good and as found in numbers two and five, good is really defined by popular culture rather than the moral imperatives of the Bible. So good is defined by what the culture would say. So right now, it's be good to your neighbor, even if they're in outright sin. And goodness to them means not saying anything, lest you be a bigot. Right? But this is not what Scripture teaches. Scriptures would tell us that we are to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, so that we help one another adhere to the teachings of the Lord and be therefore built up into the image of 
Christ, that the body would look like the body of Christ. And so it's unloving, unloving to let sin go unchecked in your brother or sister's life or in someone who's professing to be a Christian. Good is not defined by popular culture. Good is defined by God. And so they would go on to conclude that tolerating behaviors the Bible calls sin might be seen as good while calling those behaviors sin might be seen as intolerant or hateful, which is bad. The beliefs of moral therapeutic de- moralistic therapeutic deism are therapeutic in that the primary value is feeling good about yourself. God's job then, as they would say, is to take care of you. That's his job, to take care of you. However, biblical Christians will have a problem with all of these. One, not just a God exists, but the God of the Bible who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whoever does not honor Jesus Christ as God does not honor God. Two, God does not just want people to be nice, but commands that they obey him. He is the one who defines good and nice. He calls sin, sin, and promises to judge it. The central goal of life, number three, is to give glory to God. A byproduct may be that we feel good about ourselves, but that is not the goal. In fact, the more I go on believing in the Lord, the more security I have in Christ, but the worse I feel about my flesh, (laughs) right? More sins become obvious. I was just having this conversation with a a guy this week. Like the, the longer you serve the Lord, the more you see that is sinful in you. So hold on if you're young in Christ. Like the really glaringly obvious ones are first, but then you begin to notice your behavior. You get angry easy. You're irritated easily. You're, you know, whatever. You're prone to stress. You're prone to worry. And then you have to start crucifying those kinds of sins. But the Spirit is there always, as we'll see more fully next week. Our primary goal as believers is to be constantly in tune with God, following His leading in daily fellowship with Him. We are to pray without ceasing. Five, no one is good enough to go to heaven. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. No one is good enough, and that is why we need Jesus, God in the flesh. He lived the perfect life that we could not, and he died to pay for our sins so that we might be made acceptable to God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, 1 Peter 2, 24. So, it's easier to spot a non-Christian, than it is to spot a non-Christian cultural Christian, right? But make no mistake, they're both living according to the flesh. One's just learned how to church it up, we might say. While the Spirit of Christ grants Christians life and peace, enabling us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit as we clearly see, the non-Christian lives according to the flesh, setting his mind on the things of the flesh, which is death. Let's examine what it means to live according to the Spirit, setting your mind on the things of the Spirit which give life and peace. In Romans 8, 6, the B part says, For to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Verses 9 through 11. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I love what we see there. I just want to point that out. You see Spirit of God in the first part, Spirit of Christ in the second. This is not conflating the two. That's modalism. It's an old ancient heresy that's 
uh, been long since fought in like year 325 or somewhere like that. So fourth century. But that conflates these things. That says that God exists as the Father, as the Son, or as the Spirit as he needs to. Uh, one author called it moodalism. He has three moods. I thought that was pretty good. Anyway, well, what we see here is the deity of Christ and the deity of the Spirit and the deity of the Father as we talk about the God, as we talk about Jesus, and as we talk about the Spirit here. Paul has a very Trinitarian view of God. But if in Christ, I'm sorry, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So, life lived, just bottom line, bringing it down to a, a sentence, life lived according to the Spirit is life and peace. Guaranteed. Full stop. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you are no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he will also give life to your mortal bodies, which means he will work the righteousness of God into you by the power of his Spirit. Incredible. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So the body, the mortal body, dies because of sin, but the spirit of God works in us life unto righteousness. Amen? And so this is the evidence that we're looking for in Christians. Are they living according to the spirit? Ask yourself first, right? Rather than are they Am I living life according to the Spirit? Is, is there a discernible difference in my life from the time of my confession of Christ as Lord, my belief that he died and rose again for my sins, to save me from my sins? Is there a discernible difference between the things I desire and love and think about and yield to and give myself to versus before all of that? Can I see change in my life? I'm not saying you won't struggle. Look, you'll, you'll never, the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 7, right? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I continue to do. Who will save me from this body of death? So he's saying that the flesh is always going to be a problem. So I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. This isn't about perfection. This isn't about moralistic therapeutic deism. This isn't even about looking good. This is just simply about where do the seat of my affections rest? Do they rest on Christ and him crucified? Do they rest on the law of God? As David wrote, I meditate on it day and night. I've hidden God's word in my heart that I might not sin against him. Right? Do you love the Word of God? Because people, people who are living according to the flesh, setting their minds on the things of the flesh, do not love the Word of God when it's applied. They don't love the Word of God. The Word of God is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And so the Word of God must be spoken. 
But this is one way to know, does someone love the Lord truly, or if they set their minds on the flesh and are living according to its passions, one way to know that is to speak the word of God with them. Do they become angry? Do they snarl and sneer? Right? I mean, that's... If they've been... Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that when someone comes to new life in Christ, he says when the, the light of God shines into them, when God speaks and the light of the gospel is made known to them, they become a new creation, yes, but he says that they love the things of God there. Beforehand, when they're in the flesh, they do not love the things of God, nor can they understand it. But as he's transformed them, there is a love for that. So that's one question to ask yourself. Do I love God's word? Do you love the word of God? Can we see clearly where we are laying aside the entanglements and snares of sin? so that we might more fully run after Christ. Are we setting our minds on the things of the Spirit rather than the things of the flesh? What do you think about when you're daydreaming? What do, what do you think about when a beautiful woman walks in front of you? What do you think about when a good-looking man walks in front of you? What do you think about your state in life right now? Do you grumble against the Lord? Do you hate your life? Or are you learning that godliness with contentment is great gain? You see what I mean? Like, what do you ponder on? What gets you angry? What do you love? What do you watch? What do you read? What do you listen to? I'm not trying to be legalistic at all. I'm not saying anything explicitly. I'm just asking you to evaluate your own life, to think about your own mind, your own heart, your own affections, your own pursuits? What are your dreams? What kind of marriage do you want to have? What kind of children do you want to raise? That's a really good question to answer as we think about moralistic therapeutic deism because it's really easy to raise moral children for the most part. It's really easy to teach right and wrong for the most part. But what we're after are hearts that are far from God. What we're after is discipleship unto the salvation of their souls and the good of their lives beyond, amen, from, from this generation to the next. And so these are the kinds of evidences we're looking for. Paul uses the same phrase here about setting your mind on something. He says to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. He used that earlier about setting your mind on the things of the flesh. But Paul is saying here that a mind set on the things of the Spirit will think continually and consistently desire the things which are characteristic of a redeemed life. A new life in Christ, a life lived in the new nature of the Spirit. This person, this kind of man or woman or boy or girl, thinks on, pursues, desires what God says and what he wills as seen in his word. He loves the law of God because it is a guide for him. He loves Christ because he has delivered him from the power of sin and death. He does all of this in full disregard of what the world says and what the world wills and what the world desires. He doesn't care. It's going to cost you your head. I don't care. It's going to cost you your job. I don't care. It's going to cost you your life or something else. I don't care. My allegiance is to Christ and him crucified. 
Amen? As Martin Luther said, as he's staring down the Roman Catholic Church leaders, here I stand, I can do no other. Amen? In short, true Christians faithfully utter the words of Paul that we see in Galatians 2, verse 20. Paul writes there, I have been crucified with Christ. My flesh is gone, right? crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And this kind of life, a life lived according to the Spirit of God, does not yield the same fruit of the flesh. It lacks the same destruction. It lacks the same decay. It lacks the same death. This life yields the precious fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit of God is working actively to sanctify the people of God so that they would bear the fruit of God in the world. It's making you remarkably different than others. Not so you can hop around on a holier-than-thou high horse or thump people in the head with your word, but so that you can live as men and women who love God, raising children, boys and girls who love God and love their neighbor as themselves, who are submitting themselves to the things of God, setting their minds on the spirit of God, to live according to those desires, that will, that work in our world. You think about Christ in Matthew chapter 6 as he leads the Lord's prayers. He says, this then is how you pray, right? He says, not my will, but your will be done. He even says, not my kingdom, but your kingdom, right? Bring your kingdom here. Establish it here. I'm not building my own throne room. I want to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. Amen? Galatians 5, 16 through 25, we have the difference in these two lives, maybe even more spelled out. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So in Galatians 5, he's summing up Romans 6, 7, and 8. To some extent. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evidence. They are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So Paul says, even if I didn't get them all, things like these. And he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
Praise God. And so in Christ, we receive the spirit of life and peace. That is, by the spirit of God, through the work of Christ, we are reconciled to God through our being justified freely from our sins, and we are empowered by the Spirit of God now to live a life of godliness, that is, sanctification. And finally, what we see later in Romans 8, which we'll get to in the coming weeks, but finally what we see is that all of this results in glorification. It results in a heavenly homeland. It results in your presence with the King of kings and the Lord of lords for all eternity where there's no more sin, there's no more shame, there's no more sickness, there's no more death. Old things, all things have passed away. Christ sits on the throne. He looks at John in Revelation and he says, Behold, I am making all things new. Glorification. Glorification. Though your body will die, and this is part of the curse of God on Adam's sin, death comes to all. But for you, believer, you have received eternal life. And once your soul is absent from the body, it is immediately present with the Lord. And one day when Christ returns, your body will be raised again. And your soul will join your body and your body will be a new body, a transformed body. No ailments. It won't look like the body you have now, not in the problems and deficiencies that you possess today. It'll be perfected. And you'll dwell eternally with God in the new heaven and the new earth. Because the same Spirit which raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. And we know that this work is sure. We know that it's sure, not primarily because it's seen, right? New lives, living lives of godliness. This is observable fruit, that there has been real life change, that God has done what he said in Ezekiel 36, that he would put his spirit in man and that he would write his law on their hearts he would give them a new heart he would take their old heart of stone give them a heart of flesh right a new creation it's not just because of that it's primarily and this is what you have to fix your gaze on it's primarily because god does the work from beginning to end it's in his hands it's not in your own hands it's not up to you brother and sister to make sure you achieve glorification. It's not up to you to make sure your sanctification is perfected. It's up to you to humbly submit yourself to Christ and to let the Spirit of God do the work that only God can do. That's where you get to relax, breathe deeply, and live at peace in true life. This is what it means that the Spirit of God gives life and peace. Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. The Spirit of Christ, Christ grants us life and peace. It enables us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And so, friends here today, the kind of life you live displays the fruit of your faith. It's not that there is faith and no faith. It's just, what is your faith in? There is always faith. Is your faith in your own flesh? Have you set your mind on the things of the flesh? This kind of life will not please God, and it will end in death. 
However, if your faith is in Christ, then you will set your mind on the things of the Spirit, which results in eternal life and peace with God. Christ satisfies the payment of your sins in himself on the cross while you get his own righteousness by your faith in his death and resurrection unto your own salvation. This life requires you to give up your own life. But you're not giving up anything except slavery to sin. And you're giving up slavery to sin to become a slave to God, saying, I surrender to him. He's my Lord. He's my master. I am his servant. His will, his desires, his work become primary in my life. Anything that is outside of those things, which we clearly perceive in the word of God in the scriptures, must be put to death. And that'll be our sermon for next week. Life in the Spirit, part two. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you today. God, I pray for all those who are here this morning. I ask that you would reveal to them by your spirit, whether they're living according to the things of the flesh, setting their mind on the flesh, or whether they're living according to the spirit, setting their mind on the things of the spirit. Lord, help it to be clear as day for them. And Lord, for those of us in here today who are guilty, even in full or just in moments as believers, but in full as unbelievers, Lord, would you grant to us repentance? Grant repentance unto salvation. Lord, for those of us in here who fight this war with the flesh, sometimes if we're honest, Lord, we're not fighting very hard. We, we kind of let the flesh do its thing. Because again, if we're honest, we enjoy it. But Lord, would you give us a disdain, a holy dissatisfaction with the fruit of our flesh? Help us, Lord, to see that so much, everything matters. And it's clear in that whatever we're setting our affections on, that becomes who we are. And so, Lord, may our affections be on Christ and Him crucified. Father, may they be on your will for our lives, your desires. We love you. We submit ourselves to you now. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.